1: Welcome to The Mandalorian Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David.
2: And I'm John. And this is our coverage of the Disney Plus original series, The Mandalorian, season three, episode six.
1: In this podcast, we're going to be discussing a scene by scene breakdown for chapter 22, Pew Pew, Guns for Hire, followed by listener feedback and programming notes for our upcoming schedule in April.
2: So what's everyone thinking about this show? write in and let us know. You can send us feedback in two ways. Email us at starwars@thelorehounds.com or head over to our website and either use the contact form or leave a voicemail, which we'll play on the next episode. thelorehoundscom slash contact.
1: And if you're eager to talk Star Wars with us sooner, join us on our Discord server link in the show notes below. We've been having some raucous conversations over there. People are having a good time talking about the show. So jump on over, say hi. John and I are both around, and we've got a great supportive community and uh, people really having a good time talking about this show.
2: Absolutely. A quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and want to support us directly, check us out at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds for just $3 a month. You can get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, early access, bloopers, and more.
1: And of course, you can always get our ad-supported podcasts on our Firehose feed by searching for the Lorehounds on your podcast application of choice. We're on pa- Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on all the things. So just uh, look us up, Lorehounds. And um, we can also have a cool subscription tool at Lorehounds.com at our website. You can go in there and uh, tell the website what application you're using or what platform you're on, and it'll configure the, the feed link for you.
2: Lastly, we'd like to ask that if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Even better is if you can leave a short review, letting others know what you enjoy about our coverage. There's a lot of people covering this show, and ratings really do have an impact on rankings, which helps other people find our podcast, which means we can make more podcasts.
1: Yeah, and we've gotten some really lovely reviews. So if you have left us us a review, thank you. There's been some really kind words, and it means a lot to John and I to have that kind of support and encouragement. So John, What did you think about Guns for Hire? It seems to be a, I don't want to say controversial, but people are coming down uh, on different sides of this (laughs) and what this episode meant for them. So what did you think?
2: I would say I had a great time and it was also without a doubt the weakest episode of the season.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I didn't love it. Okay. I thought it was the most Clone Wars-y any of the live-action stuff has ever been. Interesting. It was very, we've gone to a planet. I saw somebody, I think on Reddit maybe, or maybe it was in our Discord, say, you sub out Bo-Katan and Din for Anakin and Obi-Wan, and that's a Clone Wars
1: episode. Oh, I, I saw people making that that comparison, and I didn't quite understand it, because obviously I haven't watched all the Clone Wars yet, but it, it makes sense now.
2: Yeah. Right. You even had, I mean, you even had Count Dooku come up, right? Yes, like, this was, exactly. And, and Battle Droids. This was just a Clone Wars episode. Right. It was, uh, and it, it was fun. You know, it was a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Uh, I was watching it at 3 a.m. with my son, who uh, has decided to stop sleeping through the night again. Okay. And I thought I was in a fever dream because all of a sudden Lizzo <laughs> and Jack Black are a couple on yes. my TV. Yes. And I did. I, it, it seemed like an SNL sketch for a minute, right? It mm-hmm. seemed like, like they were hosting SNL and she was a musical guest and they, and they just had to play characters in a Star Wars situation. But I thought they did pretty well. I thought it was fun. And uh, yeah, so basically it was, it was pretty good. It wasn't the best thing I've ever seen, but it was a fun ride. It was a nice little detour and we still moved the plot forward. So I wasn't left frustrated at the end. Nice. what do you think, David?
1: Hey, well, you had me at battle droids.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they looked a lot better than in the prequels, huh?
1: They, they looked amazing. They were, uh, pr- you know, uh, um, what I I say? Uh, live action battle droids were great. Because, uh, yeah, the, the prequels were all cgi right? And these were, yep, I don't yep. know, these were something else. Uh, I, almost to the point of like, is there a person in that suit? But how would they fit that? You know, it, was, it yeah. was really good.
2: They should have had somebody say, Roger, Roger, though. That was a oh. missed opportunity. Uh, they had plenty of
1: other member berries in there. But yes, I agree. They, they, did, they did not. I was surprised that that one droid did not say Roger, Roger. I, I, I know. Uh, I did catch that. I did think that this was a wacky episode. Yeah. Uh, we started with a Romeo and Juliet-esque story that crossed into this sort of mercenary thing. And then we had a buddy cop mystery with, yeah, what, like you said, the cameos. And, and, and I was like, okay, Jack Black. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's Lizzo. And then it's like, oh wait, it's Doc Brown, it's uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd, and I was like, stop the madness! (laughs) Um, And then we had this really strong pivot at the end that just heaved the plot forward in in huge ways, and uh, it was it was like it was kind of wacky, but it kind of worked. Um, I know I've said this before, and I was kind of harping on this in the last couple of episodes, but the production values on this season are off the charts. The, you know, using the volume, using the, the you know, just straight up CGI, um, uh, the live action, the practical sets, the Ugnaughts looked very yep. Ugnaughty, you know, uh, it, it all <laughs> looked really good. And then when they were in the, um, up on the planet's surface, everything looked bright and clean and crisp and sharp and in contrast to some of the darker episodes that we've had this season. So I just visually, I, I felt very satisfied by this, the running around on the streets um, in the city, you know, with that sort of not rainy Blade Runner feel where, you know, it's all kind of neon and, and dark, you know, noirish. looked beautiful. So I, I was really happy visually and, and overall storyline, even though that this was a, a wacky episode. What makes me nervous is that we're two episodes to go and I have no idea where we're going. And I know a lot of people in fandom are feeling frustrated and confused and they're scratching their heads. Um, But that's where we just pour the member berries, you know, get the fresh member berries out of the refrigerator, pour some, you know, blue chocolate milk on there, put on our jammies, hang out with Cyril, eat our cereal. Um, And at the same time, we've got new Republic politics happening. We've got droid autonomy and sentience. We've got, you know, Mandalorian creeds versus blood who has the right to rule. So we got this really weird dual level thing happening, uh, all, all in a very good looking package. So yeah, I just have to just go with the ride and not take it too seriously. And I'm enjoying the season and I enjoyed this episode, even though it was just kind of nutty.
2: Well, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today, and whether you like it or not, and there's plenty to say bad about this approach, Mm -hmm. but I think it could be done well if it is done well. This is not a single show story. This is now the Star Wars post-Empire multimedia project, and it includes, you know, it's informed by the Bad Batch, but that's a different timeline, Mm -hmm. but it includes this, and includes Book of Boba Fett, unfortunately. It mm-hmm. includes Ahsoka, and it's going to include Skeleton Crew when that comes out. Right. And you're not going to be able to follow the storylines of just one, I don't think. I think you're going to have to watch all these if you want to get the full right. effect. Right,
1: right. It's this whole hub and spoke thing, yeah, and then like, yeah, do you really need, yeah. Will, will you have needed to watch all of uh, Obi-Wan to to Catch what's going on. Yeah, it's like where do you cut lines and and when they mixed up Book of Boba Fett with two episodes of Mando. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot going on.
2: Yeah, that was a fatal mistake. That was really bad. Fatal? I think they need
1: to keep... the Grievous, maybe not
2: Grievous, fatal. yeah, all right, not fatal. But they, they really need to make sure that the main characters have their storylines followed up on in their show mm-hmm. or that's going to really start to turn people off yeah, because they I, got a I ton that. of bad feedback for that. I thought it would have been fun to have Mando come in and save the day fine in Boba Fett, uh-huh. but we did not need that plot line to be in Book of Boba Fett. That really should have been maybe, you know, have have a two hour Mandalorian special, right? Yeah, right, right. I I don't know why we didn't do that. Anyway, let's not complain about Book of Boba Fett. Let's have some fun with the Mandalorian. I say we get into the episode.
1: Well, we've got a few callbacks first. Uh, I've got to do a couple of things, uh, as I usually do. I'll be quick about them. Uh, One, and I'll post this uh, screenshot in the the Discord when we get done recording here, but there was this really interesting uh, scene when Bo and the armorer were talking last uh, last episode when they were down at the Old Forge, and uh, it was when the armorer asked uh, Bo to take off her helmet, and then she approaches her, and there's a shaft of light coming down out of the ceiling, and it's illuminating the armorer's head and Bo's feet. Hmm. And a lot of times when you use that hard light silhouetting, you're, uh, and characters are moving in or out of the light, they're typically trying to say something about their, you know, oh, this character's dark, this character's light, they're good, they're rising up out of the darkness, whatever. And so I thought it was really interesting that um, using the diagonal shaft of light, they were connecting bow and the armor together in this moment. So I think there's a uh, hmm. Connectivity that's happening there. And I think that to me, that's just evidence of this larger story of, of Bo and the children of the watch and, and what's going on there. Interesting.
2: Interesting. Yeah, yeah I like that.
1: Um, uh Alicia, who is on our Discord and who has dropped us some uh, more knowledge bombs. We've got a huge uh, recording from her today about two different topics, which we'll get to later. But she pointed out that the Srikhawks, they were the insignia of Clan Visla and thus became a symbol of Death Watch, which was led by Visla. So that was la- mm. a couple of episodes ago where the armorer says, Take the hawk training corps. And so, and I was wondering what the deal was with that. And uh, she was able to come up with that answer that, that had to do with Visla and
2: the Death Watch. Yeah. We do not stand Death Watch. It was a no. bad organization, <laughs> right. which, which Bo is partly responsible for. Uh,
1: another uh, quick callback to last episode, Paz calling um, Captain Teva blue, right? When he's talking to him, he's uh-huh. like, clear out of here, blue. Uh, missable detail in the Adelphi bar, the New Republic flags were all blue with a yellow insignia on them. Okay. So I think that 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 had to go into the uh, way that the New Republic forces are, you know, being colored and and with their flag and stuff like that. Gotcha. All right. That's fun. Lastly, and this one's we've got to talk about a little bit. We'll try to be quick about it, but it's kind of important, I think. Gideon. Okay. Yep. Uh, In the Lambda shuttle, right, we had a Beskar alloy wasn't pure Beskar, it was a Beskar alloy, and I'm not sure, is that like a question mark? I don't know enough, you know, metallurgical knowledge, I don't have enough metallurgical knowledge about Beskar. Hmm. But my question is, one of my questions is, how does a piece of Beskar get broken off and lodged in a wall of a shuttle when they were trying to, you know, uh, uh, extract Gideon? How does Beskar break like that? That is, seems very, very strange to me. And so then it starts to open up that whole question of, is this a false flag? Was this pirates? Was this empire rem, remnants? Was this rogue Mandalorians? Um, I think one theory that's going around, and the folks over at the Ringerverse had a, an article about this, is there a secret base on Mandalore, which would explain the bombers? Mm. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, so my ultimate tinfoil hat is that Thrawn and Gideon are secretly mining Beskar on Mandalore to make Dark Troopers out of Mandalore armor. That's like my batshit crazy tinfoil All right. hat I like you know, it. thing. Um, but I wanted to see what if you had any more thoughts. I mean, I know we touched on it a little bit last episode, but broken Beskar—is it what, who, what, where? Um, and I wanted mm. to see if you had any, any had developed any thoughts on that since last week.
2: You know where I'm from. Precious metals are scarce. And so mm. to make them stronger, we combine them with other metals. Wait, wait, what is that alley. from? <laughs> that's from Rings of Power. That's, that's oh. <laughs> It's
1: like, I know what that line is, and I can't pull that out of my head. I got too much pop culture cruft in there. But, yeah, uh, that's yeah, awesome. That's yeah. a good callback. Did you hear that there was a fire at the theater that shut down? I heard. And the horse a died. Not there. The Not at the fire. There was, okay. a,
2: there was a, this was like a week ago, I think. A horse okay. died while shooting a charge scene. OK, um, so they're, they're having a lot of issues with rings of power right yeah. now. Uh, uh, we're crossed. not getting that this year.
1: No, no, that's that's for sure. But anyway, any any further thoughts on Beskar and, and Gideon?
2: Well, I don't think Beskar is impervious. I okay. think that it is very, very strong, but I could be wrong about that. But I, I it can't be impervious, right? Because how would you ever kill a Mandalorian then? I guess well, you, you, I guess you shoot between. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't want it to be impervious because that's stupid. I mean, if you look at pure... It can't be impossible to get through, right? Right.
1: But when, when Din had the spear and Moff Gideon was whacking him with the Darksaber, right. the pure Beskar spear could resist the force of the Darksaber. Right. So, but that's, right, but pure, Beskar, right? lasers, that's and, pure Beskar. But maybe it's resistant to lasers. That's
2: pure Beskar. But even then, even if you say, like, okay, it does, any amount of Beskar will protect you, mm-hmm. then, okay, maybe it's resistant to lasers. Maybe that's, like, what makes it special because this mm-hmm. is... Uh, this is a society this galactic society uses yep. laser weapons to do everything right. so if it's resistant to lasers that's functionally impervious in war right but if you get blown back hard enough in your armor from an explosion yeah you probably die right yeah so i, broken I I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it breaks in some circumstances we should we need to get a, a beskar es- expert in here that would Up be Up nice. expert
1: a expert <laughs> So, any any thoughts on uh, who might have sprung Gideon?
2: Uh, I think that the last thing we're going to see in the season is going to be a post-credit scene with Thrawn. Okay, got it. And then Thrawn is going to be the main villain of the Ahsoka series.
1: Interesting. Okay, so we're going to. That's my
2: bet. Got it.
1: Okay, fair enough. Um, And we do have some internet points to wager later in the episode when we get some feedback, because one of our listeners that wrote in a while back had won a huge pile of of points. So, all right, let's get into it. Let's do it. This uh, episode was about 38 minutes, if you don't include the previous on and the, the credits, and it was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. And she's done a lot of work in the Star Wars Universe now, and she's becoming very sure-footed. And um, even, regardless of whatever the script you might want to say about the script, I thought the, the direction was pretty spot-on. She did a really oh, yeah, good job.: For sure. She, she's becoming one of my favorite directors in the Star Wars Universe so far.
2: Yeah, no, I think she's doing a great job, but you're right. It was a well-directed episode. Honestly, the whole production value of it was great. I think the, the weakest part was the writing. It still wasn't bad, but it was, yeah. that, was, that was the thing that drug it down a little bit for me.
1: Right, and we had three almost, almost three full separate stories kind of connected together, yeah, so it yeah, was yeah. a little weird. Yeah. All right, we open on a Quarren ship being intercepted by Axe Woves and his band of Mandalorian mercenaries in the Arquintus-class command cruiser that they took from Moff Gideon at the end of season two wove exploits i've got to watch my <laughs> my autocorrect wanted to ke- keep making that wolves um mm, it's yeah. wove's ex, uh exposits about who and what they are and tells captain Shugoth that he and his band have been hired by a mon calamari viceroy to capture and return the viceroy's son
2: uh, the mon calamari are back can we just talk about this i know that this is something from the, the original trilogy <laughs> But, George Lucas, can you just name this species a better name? The Mon Calamari? <laughs> yeah. Really? It's ridiculous. Uh, there was an arc in the Clone Wars, and it was a Civil War arc between the Mon Calamari and the Quarren, who are, you know, they occupy the same planet. Mm-hmm. And basically, the Quarren wanted, people to, wanted their people to rule. The Mon Calamari wanted to continue ruling. There's a whole thing. And it's like my least favorite Clone Wars arc. Oh, really? <laughs> maybe, maybe D-Squad is a little worse for me, because that's, that's where the droids are on a special mission. It's very stupid. Anyway, it's one of my least favorite ones. I think the writing is awful. The, like, the prince is just going around to his imprisoned people, who are imprisoned in the water and could probably get away. And he's like, I have a message for you. Don't give up hope. And I'm like... It just—it was just so bad. Right. It was so like cringy dialogue, but Padme basically helps. I think Padme and Anakin, maybe Ahsoka, all help. You know, liberate the the Mon Calamari and eventually get the Mon Calamari and the Quarrens to work together against the Separatists. It's a whole thing. Anyway, we, point we is have, they uh, got along, and now we know that they are getting along still.
1: The um, it was funny the uh, on the bridge scene, the sound effects. There was like submarine sonar sounds, <laughs> uh-huh. so it was uh, it was a very you know uh on point there. and then the right. the star destroyer, first we get the shot of the star destroyer, right, so a very classic star wars you know seventy seven thing right uh, where yeah. it's going sort of nose to tail, and then the docking sounds as it's coming over the ship were also right out of uh, uh, a new hope. Uh, it was like, okay, all right, all right. So anyway, the, um, it seemed like they were headed, the, the ship was headed to Trask, which I believe is where the frog lady from season two, episode two, was heading when um, Grogu was committing genocide. Yes, <laughs> and Eating all yes. the frog eggs. Captain Sugoth says that they finally, quote-unquote, have peace with the Mon Calamari, and Woves tells her that he knows that she did it for love. The young Mon Calamari prince comes onto the bridge. Um, and begs to be not taken back and to express his love. Shugoth tells him to go, and the Mandalorians escort him off. Woves says that they have a contract waiting for them on Plazir 15.
2: So is this like a long-term
1: contract, I guess? Yeah, it turns out to be.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't love Woves. I think he is... really. He's kind of terrible. The, like, oh, you mean, the, you mean the character,
1: right? No, yeah. The character. No, yeah, he's yeah, an
2: yeah. awful person is what I'm saying. He's, it, fi- yeah. he's fine as, as a character. Actor's doing a good job. Character's yeah. well-written. But just uh, the whole, our, I thought Mandalorians were supposed to be honorable. We are for money.
1: <laughs> yeah. He's very yeah.
2: mercenary. Yep. Yep. And this was Not all
1: great. very Romeo and Juliet. Um, yep. So uh, Alicia wrote in, or wrote in, she recorded in uh, some knowledge for us. She's going to give us a nice background, uh, some more background on the Quarren and the Mon Calamari uh, conflict. So let's take a listen to that clip.
0: We got our Moncala Romeo and Juliet story at the opening, which was definitely yet another reward for fans who sat through the episodes of Clone Wars you're usually told to skip. Um, we started this episode getting reintroduced to Bogotan's old crew when they show up to take back uh, Mon Calamari Viceroy's wayward lovelorn son, who's run off with a Quarren captain. Um, that captain, Captain Shugoth, by the way, is played by Christine Adams. Well, if you Google her, she's one of those faces that keeps popping up in things. So, of course, you can't see her face here. Um, but the Mon Calamari princeling, um, he was a actually played by Harry Holland, as in the little brother of Tom Holland, aka Spider-Man. Um, but of course, in this episode, yeah, the captain plays dumb with the Mandalorians when they first show up. And she says, we finally have peace with the calamari. Why would I jeopardize that? Uh, now, we've seen these two species pop up together in previous Mando episodes, but in this episode, the writers seem to be specifically drawing attention to the long history of civil war between them, which is something most Mando-only viewers probably don't know much about, but it's covered pretty extensively in one of the less popular Clone War story arcs. Um uh, basically the Mari, the, the fish-faced ones um like Admiral Akbar and of it's a trap fame um and the Quarins, who are sometimes called squidheads which is an insult so be careful uh, they share a water planet um uh, and they've been warring off and on for centuries um uh, many even left their home planet to escape the politics mostly settling on the moon Trask which is where we saw Dinmi Bo and her crew for the first time in season 2 um, but the Calamari and Quarons on their home planet, they're rivals in the spaceship building industry, which is Mon Cala's biggest export. And the Mon Calamari's basically treated the Quarons as like a subspecies. Now, during the Clone Wars, Dooku, he steps in and wants to take advantage of this. So he has someone assassinate the Mon Calamari king knowing they'll blame the Quarins. Now, the Quarins are just like, this is the last straw, and they uh, rebel and start a, a new civil war. Um, but with the guidance of Ahsoka and Anakin, uh, the new Ma- Mon kalamari princeling, he made peace with the Quarins, and the two managed to team up to push the Separatists off their planet with the help of some Gungans, including Jar Jar. Um, Now, this story arc, it it isn't very popular, like I said, but there is a cool underwater battle where they actually fight in 3D with like attacks from above and below as well as the sides, which is something that Star Wars seems to kind of forget is possible in most of their space battles. Um, But anyway, by the time of the original film trilogy, the Mon Calamari had especially become important members of the Rebel Alliance, though their planet was occupied by Imperials. But after the Empire basically carpet-bombed them, uh, which is the plot of the dogfight shooter game Star Wars Squadrons, um, then they became isolationist again, which is where we stand around the time of the Mando timeline. But later in the timeline, in the Allegiance comic book series, which takes place during the sequel trilogy, uh, at this point the two species will again pledge their allegiance to Leia's resistance, this time to fight against the First Order. So what we might be seeing right now is a story arc playing out that sort of connects the dots to get to there um, from what happened before. So I don't know if we'll be seeing more of the two specific characters we saw in this episode are Romeo and Juliet. Uh They didn't even name the Mon Calamari nobleman's son. But it is interesting that at one point, Mando took a bounty to pick up a Calamari nobleman's son who skipped bail, uh, which is a job that he abandoned when he realized he couldn't leave Grogu in the cloners' hands um, and went back to save him. So it's probably not the same unnamed noble Calamari child, but it would be kind of fun if it was. Uh Knowing Star Wars, though, Captain Shugoth, at least, and maybe even Harry Holland will pop up randomly somewhere in the future. But in any case, it does seem like Star Wars wants us to be paying attention to the overall political conflict between the two species and their relationships with the powers that be in the galaxy.
2: So that was a much better explanation than I gave a minute ago of uh, all the politics. I didn't know about the sequel trilogy timeline stuff, so that's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, and it seems like Trask is involved, as you as you have posited prior, David. Yeah. So it's uh, it's not that it's their home planet, but I believe some. she said some of them fled there, right?
1: Right, right. Okay, yeah, that's what's going on. And amazing here, we've got books, we've got comics, we've got um, games, all yep. tying into this kind of stuff. So Filoni and, and Favreau are just so steeped in their their knowledge, their encyclopedic knowledge. I'm sure they they have a whole research team that's oh, working yeah. on this stuff yeah. as well. This
2: is not a one-person gig.
1: <laughs> no, unlike uh, Alicia's one-person gig here, who is just knocking it out of the park with these knowledge bombs that she's dropping on us to mix metaphors
2: badly. Um, that's all right. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. I mean, that was super informative. It was nice. I, I didn't remember half of the Clone Wars arc because, as you said, it is one of the <laughs> less popular ones, I think for good reason, because the writing is awful. But uh She's, i'm uh, glad that alicia's... we're finally seeing what keep going keep going uh, no I'm, i was marking okay but yeah i mean uh I'm, I'm glad that they're finally following up on it in a way that feels satisfying
1: yeah and alicia's got some uh more knowledge for us later about the mandalorian creed but we'll drop that in at the end when we get to that point there so
2: all right very cool
1: all right um, we get our title card, Guns for Hire, and this was an interesting thing because it broke the pattern of usually the something-something, so like, you know, the pirate, yeah, right? the whatever, and so this Guns for Hire was a, a different title. I don't know if it means anything, uh, if they couldn't
2: just... I think we've done it before, right? Redemption, I think, was one of them. Okay. So I have to go it's back not the look. first time, right. but it's, uh, it's uncommon, for sure, yeah. you're right.
1: All right, so we cut to Bo's ship, the Gauntlet, jumping into Pleasure 15, with Bo, Din, Grogu, and R5, who's way in the back there, uh, I saw him during my uh, rewatch, we see a domed city connected by Hyperloops and a small fleet of other Korm-class fighter transport and Gideon's light cruiser on the surface.
2: Yeah, so what did you think about this, this area? I wasn't sure where we were going at first. I wasn't yeah. sure if... I guess, I guess Plazier 15 was dropped earlier, but it didn't really... I, I wasn't didn't sure if it didn't we were, register. yeah, it, it didn't connect for me. I thought, I thought we might be going to, uh, Mon for a little bit. Sure. Because I saw domes and I, and I feel like there was some kind of domed thing in Mon in that arc, but I was wrong. It's Plazir 15, which I don't think we've seen before.
1: Right. And it makes sense, you know, whatever, whatever the time delay is, um, Bo and crew got some intel that, uh. The Mandalorian mercenary fleet was there. I right. obviously, um, the, one of the first things that I thought when I saw that little fleet there was, and, and Din states this obviously, that that would be a very useful fleet to be able to try and take, retake <laughs> Mandalore, you know, right. to, to move everybody off the covert and, and get them into Mandalore and the drop ships. And yeah. they've got a heavy transport, they've got a heavy Imperial transport, they've got a light cruiser. You know, so they've got some some firepower and some you know uh, ability to do some heavy lift there. So uh, that was kind of cool. And I, I just have to say, I love the shots of seeing the gauntlet flying through the clouds yep. and yep. streaking into the planet, and the planet just looked beautiful. Um, I did have a question, and maybe this is something that comes out of uh, Clone Wars stuff, but this is the first time I noticed that Bo has a big old scar across her forehead. Um, Mm. And I don't know if that's a character detail or if that's an actor thing, but there is a very noticeable uh, from hairline to eyebrow, big diagonally long scar across her face. And I thought, well, well, maybe that was maybe something happened to Bo in in an animated episode where she was wounded or something.
2: I don't remember anything, but I'm going to say it's Helmet Head. (laughs) Right. She took her
1: helmet off one day and it just sort of scraped off her forehead.
2: Yep. Yep. Didn't go well for her.
1: All right, so they receive an automated message welcoming them to Plazier 15, the galaxy's last remaining direct democracy. The ship is taken over by the automated landing system, and they land on a pad outside the main dome and are greeted by what looks to be two Imperial droids.
2: Yeah, so the Imperial droids, you go, hmm, is it really a reformed person? And uh, so, so now the Amnesty program has me on edge the whole time. Uh-huh right? Because right. every time I hear somebody's in it, and every time I see former Imperial assets, I go, what nervous. is really happening here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that already gave me anxiety. And the fact that they, you know, they, they took the ship and they just made them land, that was like, yeah, that was a trip. what's happening here?
1: Yeah. The music was, uh, it sounded like one of those um, uh, washing machines that you get, modern washing machines, where there's like... <laughs>
2: Um, I know, yeah. That was I liked it. I thought it was perfect for the society. Yeah, completely.
1: And the but the you gotta you gotta think though that that you know um, mirror mirror. Uh, I don't know you. I, I know you're not a big Trekkie, but there you know there's a very famous uh, story arc from the original series that's carried on to a couple of other things where there's a you know it's called mirror. The first original one was called Mirror Mirror, and it was um, the Enterprise crew encounters their opposites in a mirror universe. And so Spock has got this badass goatee, and, and they're all bloodthirsty and stuff like that. So we had a, a mirror, mirror version of C-3PO and R2 waiting for them here yeah, on the yeah. Hyperloop uh, uh, station.
2: So I liked it.
1: Yeah. I enjoyed it. Something I did notice, too, which did play out a little bit, was that Bo had her jetpack, but not her helmet. And then Din obviously had his helmet, but no jetpack. So... Uh, that comes into play in some of the action later on. But I thought it was very strange that Bo didn't take her helmet. Not that it was that big of a deal, but
2: you know. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, I know she doesn't want to wear it all the time, but you would want it to fight at some point, right? Yeah,
1: you get punched <laughs> in the head or something. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Blast the head. Yeah.
2: All
1: right. They jump into a Hyperloop car and ask to be taken to the Mandalorian fleet. The automated system says that they can't, and they're asked to scan their chain codes. And they're informed by the planetary leadership that the planetary leadership has requested to see them and they're whisked off uh, in speed and comfort.
2: Wasn't, did they delete uh, Din's uh, crime? Because wasn't he registered as a criminal at one point as the Mandalorian who helped kidnap a... Pri- oh, not kidnap, a break out a prisoner? Oh,
1: right. Yeah. I
2: think they did resolve that, but I can't remember totally. Okay. And but he in- was very free with his chain code. He's like, yeah, all right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um... The whole chain code stuff, like, really, uh, was a highlight of the cloning stuff for me.
2: Oh yeah, Go yeah. It just
1: it just sort of it, it just was like a, a reinforcing or buttressing the the whole thing of genetics, and right, you know, right. being able to you know your fingerprints, your genetic code, what what have you, and then it obviously comes into play later on in the in the episode. I right, it's strange right. that Grogu. They didn't ask to scan Grogu's chain code. Well, if
2: you're a minor, you know, I guess. I guess that's what it <laughs> At is. At 50 years old.
1: Right. Um, interesting. Uh, I tried to do some uh, research on the Coruscant Accords, and it seems like that's something that they're building in the show. So Article 9 was nowhere to be found on the internets, um, and that was access to self-defense forces and peacekeeping zones.
2: Yeah, that was the same document that had the no yes, cloning rule, right? Exactly, yeah. So, yep. so we're, we are building it up, as you said.
1: So that's cool. Um, and I have to say that the, the filming in the Hyperloop, the, they, I mean, obviously this must have been in the volume. And so as they're cruising by and the light is reflecting off their helmets and hitting their faces, it looked, looked great. It really looked, yeah. Uh, looked, looked special.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't tell that it wasn't real.
1: All right, so they arrive at a party being hosted by Jack Black and Lizzo.
2: <laughs>
1: We're introduced to Amnesty Officer Captain Bombardier and the Duchess. And we learn about Plazier's history and how Bombardier and the Duchess are both elected and royals.
2: Jack Black has one of those voices where the minute you hear it, you know who it is. <laughs> and when exactly. he goes, come! Yeah. I just knew it was him and I yeah. was delighted. Yeah, I you were okay, it was so good. funny to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, I had a ton of fun this episode. I thought, yeah. I thought the story was a little silly and, and, you know, it was basically just a procedure, all right? But... Uh, <laughs> But other than that, I mean, I, I had a ton of fun. And that's what we're here for, right? Like, that's the point of Star Wars. John, do you enjoy secretions? Would you like a little sip-sip? I would not like a secretion. <laughs> no, thank you. I that... would rather eat... Uh, I'm sorry, I would rather drink Mon Mothma's weird cocktails than I would have one of these secretions. <laughs>
1: that's right. I was going to say... A yeah, worm cocktail. thing, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Or you could have a fish if you're traveling with the Quarren, you know, in your oh, right, like, float tank. Oh, right. Yeah, they did some, definitely some funny stuff here. Uh, Missable detail, two individuals of the frog lady species were sitting to uh, Captain Bombardier's left there at the end of the table. Um, We don't know. I tried to, again, do some internet searches about the frog lady, and that's all she's identified as, and they don't, uh, nobody has given us the species information yet for them. But there were a couple of them at this party.
2: You know... Everybody wants the species names. Between this and not naming it the Yoda species, we're all mad. We're all just furious. (laughs) It's very frustrating.
1: Um, Bombardier was a, a very interesting name, and I wasn't sure maybe that Jack Black was Canadian, but he's actually from California. So Bombardier was a Canadian snowmobile company that I believe was started around the 40s. And then in the 70s and 80s, they expanded into public transport vehicles and jets. So a lot of, you know, private corporate jets, you know, uh, are, are Bombardier's. If you ride on, on streetcars or some buses, they're, they're built by uh, Bombardier. So I don't know why they, they chose that name. It was a very fantastical name, though, Captain Bombardier, you know, but other <laughs> yeah, than that... Yeah, maybe that's why, a, right? Yeah, I think so. It just sounded good. And... Lizzo's hairpiece was amazing. <laughs> the yeah. thing was wild.
2: That was yeah. very cool. Yeah, super cool. I thought they both did a great job. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, they, were, they were a cute couple. I enjoyed yes. them.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right, Bo asked to see the Mandalorians and, Bar- and Bombardier pitches them on the conditions. It seems like some repurposed droids are causing trouble and they went Bo and Din to solve the mystery. Bombardier and the Duchess explained that their charter forbids forbids weapons inside the city, but because they're a pluralistic society, Bo and Din can have weapons and armor, since those things are intrinsic to Mandalorian culture. In return, they offer to have Plazir recognize Mandalore once it is
2: retaken. You know, they didn't really need the weapons that much in the end. No. They could have taken them out without the weapons. Just a jetpack. I think they Mm. would have been fine. Right, or uh,
1: some of the, uh, what are the cable things that they, the grappling hook things. Yeah, the grapple
2: hooks, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, missable detail when they're walking out to admire the view, they walk across that little game board piece that they see, that they play later where Grogu oh, okay. helps. Um, and that the, um, it seems like all the um, uh, Pleasure Palace Guard are wearing Stormtrooper armor just minus the helmets. Right, right. So Well, you
2: know, you got good armor. Why, why do you even need... Yeah, why throw it away? You yeah. Know. I, I agree. I mean the stormtrooper armor is basically just a different version of the clone armor and that yeah, stuff is yeah, good. So. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Although the clones will tell you that it's far inferior, <laughs> just so you know. If I you don't watch know what Rebels.
1: The, I don't know what yeah. it actually does. <laughs> it doesn't seem to help them in, in many ways. So Yeah,
2: yeah. It's uh it's not great. It's no. not great armor. <laughs>
1: Now, I don't know about your daughter, but I know if my daughter ever saw that thing that the Duchess had behind her, that train, that flower yep. cape thing, there would be no peace in my household until uh, one of those things was procured and worn uh, 24-7. That thing was so
2: cool. Well, my daughter is up to saying, snack, pretzel. So <laughs> that's, that's where we're at on the demands. Okay. So I have not been... I, they, she has not demanded a specific toy yet.
1: Okay. Wow. Interesting. Only,
2: only to play.
1: Has she self-identified so. for colors or patterns oh, or yeah, that kind of stuff? Oh,
2: yeah. Plenty of that stuff.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I, I yeah. think that, you know, it's- We're on our way. Well, I remember uh, some relatives of us gave, uh, gave her some of those um, uh, fairy wings that you can strap on your, your back. Oh, you know, yeah. The little wire and, and yeah. um, net ones. And uh, yeah, those didn't come off for like weeks. <laughs> so uh, yeah. they, she's, she's a little too young come. for
2: that kind of hyper fixation, but okay. it'll come. It's coming. It's coming. Right.
1: All right. So this is where we slip into buddy cop territory. Um. By the way, have you ever seen Forty Eight Hours or Beverly Hills Cop? I have not. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. That's that's the model. The that's the model the for
2: this episode. Yeah, we got to put it on the old men list. All right, David. Let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll head to the control center.
1: And we're back. So yeah, just when we thought that the uh, cameos, were, <laughs> we couldn't have any more cameos, we get Christopher Lloyd as Commissioner Hellgate, uh, the wizard behind the droid management system on Pleasure. We get some exposition about the droid reprogramming program. Bo and Din watch videos, watch YouTube videos of droids breaking bad, and Bo asks why they don't shut them all off. Hellgate directs them to speak with the Ugnaughts on the lower
2: level. Great Scott. <laughs> I loved this. I loved him showing up. Oh, you, you know did? what's funny is I was uh-huh. telling my wife about all the cameos. Yeah. She's, not, she's not into the Star Wars or anything like it. <laughs> but I said, you know, Christopher Lloyd was in it, Doc Brown. She goes, oh, I'd trust him. And I was like, well, he was the villain. <laughs> and, and She said, well, then never mind. <laughs> never mind.
1: So one of the things that Hellgate mentions the planet Carton Uh, which is the planet where Migs Mayfield was uh, held prisoner when Uh, Kara Dune sprung him uh, for Chapter 15 for The Believer. Uh, So that seems to be a big chop shop uh, planet. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, just more
2: connective tissue. Right. Yeah, that's cool. I like the continuity.
1: Yep. All right, Bo and Din descend to the Ugnaught Workshop. Bo tries to throw her weight around, but Din is able to... Uh, smooth things over with the Ugnats with a little bit of respect and honor to get the info they need. In the Hyperloop on the way to the loading dock, Bo is upset with Din for usurping her when speaking with the Ugnats.
2: Yeah, uh, but, I mean, Din did a great job doing that, right? He did, yeah. He... You know, it's, it's so interesting to contrast his diplomacy here yeah. with how he treats the droids later. I mean, when mm-hmm. he wants to, he's very intelligent. He's very sensitive to people's sensibilities. Mm-hmm. He is, you know, very perceptive of people's mannerisms. He's, he remembers specific details like saying, I have spoken two seasons ago. I mean, that's a lifetime ago for him. Didn't he
1: uh, treat with the, um, the sand people as well? Um... Yeah, he did. Yeah, and he did a good he's job a good, with that. He's he's the price line negotiator. I think when he's got he's a very goal oriented individual. When he's got yep. a, a clear goal, he he whatever whatever he f- can figure out to be the best way forward, he goes that route. So, Right. Loved the callback to Quill uh to season 1 uh with Nick Nolte's uh original Ugnut character in the in the series. Right. Yeah. Right. And it was it's interesting, yeah, because Bo's just try hey, I'm I'm Bo. I'm from House Kree's. Listen to me. And Right. Yeah. For- she tries to
2: use her swagger mm-hmm. and Din says, Who would they respect? Mm-hmm. And pulls on that. Which also I think goes back to she is someone who had royalty handed to her and had Mandalorian stature handed to her. Din is someone who had to work for it and Din knows what it's like to be nobody. And he's walking Very into important. a room assuming he's nobody.
1: Yep. And and uh Walking into a room where he understands the culture and that they're not highborn people, right? But they're right, you know, right. working class, if you will. Um, but this is what I was saying last episode with Bo, and when, you, when she's among the children of the Watch, you know, they don't care about her House Cree's status. So, you know, Bo's right. out in the world, she's trying to use what tools she has, she, you know, she's realizing that, you know, doesn't realize very fast that that's not... Working, but at least with the children on the watch, they were relating to her minus her house status, and so I think that was affecting her. And she, so this is this is all changing her point of view on being a potential ruler, uh, and and driving that particular storyline.
2: I think that Bo is at her best when she is not in charge. To be <laughs> I honest agree with you. I agree. I agree. I totally agree. And. I've heard some calls on the Discord to rewrite my song. <laughs> that's right. Not till the I'm season's over. I'm not there over. yet. Not till the season's yeah, over. Yeah, let's, let's let her prove herself a little bit more, guys. She's on a good tra- trajectory, but let's see where she goes now that she has a little power, because that has not gone well for her before. Right. She gets over her skis a little bit, right? She gets a little copy. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Yeah. And but that's what she doesn't, right? I hope she developed, but I do not believe it yet. Show
1: well, me. You know, this is where we get into the concept of balance, and in this sort of, you know, balancing Din and, and having Din and Grogu, maybe those are the counterweights that, you know, are going to be helpful for her to, um, right. to achieve a, a different kind of um, status.
2: Right. Her husband right. and stepson.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. On the docks, Bo says she, that she hasn't seen battle droids since the Clone Wars, which, there you go, Clone Wars call out. Bo questions a droid while Din tries to provoke a few. His efforts succeed. They give
2: chase. (laughs) I loved him just kicking the droids. I mean, (laughs) look, I know know he was being a dick, but it was very funny. (laughs) It was effective. It was effective. Yeah, he was right. Yeah, He's not really hurting them, right? He's just, he's just pushing them over.
1: Have you seen the Boston Dynamics videos? No, I haven't. Okay, so there's this company called Austin Dynamics, and they make uh, robots, and they make a droid that looks very much like the battle droid, and okay. they make these little dog things, like e- NYPD is even using them for like, you know, okay. um, bomb stuff, and they're
2: it's Like the very super free- battle droid, you mean? Like the silver ones? hmm yeah, okay, the one like that right.
1: that was- uh, That Din was, that getting. He was kicking, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, you're gonna need to watch this YouTube video. And uh, they, they, they had a whole room, mm-hmm. one of the videos was a whole room of these big bots dancing and doing like 50s shimmy, like shake your butt okay. dancing. Um, and then there's this one that's a, a bit famous where they have a droid walking around and one of the, one of the uh, Boston Dynamics employees is like pushing out and kicking it to try to test its balance, but it just looks terrible. It just looks right. like they're, you know, being, harassing this droid. And so this video, th- what Din was doing is like straight out of that video. So, hmm. Definitely have to, to to see that. It's a they're short clips. They're they're pretty funny. Right.
2: Alright, yeah, I gotta check this out.
1: Alright, the droid they chase the droid out onto the streets, and in a scene inspired by so many movies, they fight and ultimately subdue the out of control droid. They recover a spark pad with an address for a droid bar called the resistor.
2: Yeah, uh <laughs> Again, we're in the procedural thing, right? They happened to exactly. find another clue. And now we've got to follow the clue to the That's bar. Exactly right. And we're going to talk to the guy.
1: And we got to chase the bad guy down the street. And it's got to be like yep. this raucous thing. You know, French Connection, yep. uh, Men in Black, uh, you know, 48 Hours, Beverly right. Hills Cop. It's all, it was all right out of that. So
2: Yeah, it was. Uh, this is why I felt it was a little silly, right? And, yeah. and uh, it was oh. fine. It was fine. Again, guys, I'm having a great time. Yeah. I, when I turn <laughs> off my brain, I'm having a great time. But if you're asking me for my critical opinion, this right. was the weakest writing of the season. But I, again, like whatever. Who cares?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I looked up spark pads. Those also seem to be a new thing. I, I guess it's like a business card. But then it was like a spark pad is a, a piece of metal that you can attach to something else to intentionally hmm. cause sparks. So you could put one on the uh, tail of a skateboard, say, and then when you tip up, you can drag that piece of metal and it'll cause sparks to shoot out from behind you Ah, or you can put it on a car or something like that exactly so
2: so i wasn't quite sure he was a skater boy he Mm -hmm. said see you later boy (laughs) she wasn't good enough for him
1: was that that's a 90s thing isn't it it's the early
2: 2000s it's avril lavigne that's it show her respect I
1: i know i know who she was i remember when it came out i remember i just had the decade wrong Um, On their way to the bar, Bo tells Din to follow her lead in an attempt to keep her partner under control. This is classic buddy cop movie stuff, uh, you know, right out of the pages of the the trope phone book. Yep, yep. So, um, and uh, again, you know, balance here, right? You know, the, you know, Din versus Bo, who's got what strengths, and they haven't learned yet to trust each other. Uh, when it comes to these, you know, types of negotiations, and right. when one person has needs to have the lead. I mean, this was classic Lethal Weapon with Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Danny Glover's like, "Okay, look, we're gonna go in. We're gonna be cool. I'm gonna talk. It'll all be fine. We're not gonna shoot nobody." They walk in. What happens? They get in a gun battle, and uh, you know, uh, Mel Gibson has yep. to kill the guy, right? So, and they lose yep. their their clue. So, this is like right out of um, uh, ripped out of the pages. they getting too old for it. That's exactly right. As they walk into the bar, the music stops, and all the optical sensors turn towards them. Din throws out a reverse line from 77, and they speak to the bartender, and Din threatens to yank out its memory circuits. Bo cautions Din, and then the bartender offers to help. You're wasting your time. You can't reason with droids. Their behavior is programmed. All they do is reason. They are also programmed not to (laughs) harm organics. How's that going?
2: Man, uh, someone doesn't like the droids a bit. <laughs> <laughs> seriously,
1: seriously. Well, we don't know Droidist. exactly
2: what happened to him in his childhood, right? But I think, I think it's assumed, it's pretty much implied that the separatists were involved in some way.
1: Oh, right. And he almost got squashed by uh, a battle droid himself, didn't he? Right, right. In the
2: flashback so, scene. He's not, not a big fan of the droids, we know. yeah.
1: Lots of Easter eggs in this bar scene. Um, I think I even saw A.Z.I. The uh, droid from Bad Batch that was flighting, that flies around with Omega at times. I think oh, yeah, I saw the, a few me- of those. The medical droid? Mm-hmm. I, I saw at least two of those, uh, what I thought were mm-hmm. those.
2: All kinds. I thought I'm I sure saw a probe you droid. Oh, really? I thought I saw an Imperial probe droid, but I could be okay. wrong. That's cool.
1: Um, and then, of course, the line of, like, you know, I don't think they get our kind in here much, right? Which is, like, straight out of uh, uh, the original uh, New Hope where, you know, the bartender tells CTPO and R2-D2 not to come in.
2: I so, know. I had the same thought, you know, oh, oh, okay. So now we're doing the reverse. You're not welcome here. Although they didn't. They were actually yeah. much more polite. But it was, and
1: again, like, uh, it, you know, it was a trap when Pershing, you know, calls out that it's a trap line. So, yeah, they're, they're yeah. pulling all this stuff. They're pulling all yeah. this stuff. And strangely, John, strangely, it's not bothering me. Okay. So you know you're
2: all in. See, this is what you've crossed the threshold. I really have of of being able to put on your pajamas, yeah, and just have fun. Because I think
1: I think if you if you had not said that right at the beginning of of the season, I think I would have been it would have been a lost cause.
2: Mm. So maybe now you'll actually like the Clone Wars. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, but you know I'll I'll switch it to the
1: Japanese uh, audio language track, and and I think I'll I'll be fine. There you go. Uh, The bartender comments that on Plazier The droids are given a second chance, whereas the New Republic would rather scrap them, especially the droids that go back to the Separatist era. The droids want to contribute in return for having been created by organics. Human life is short.
2: All right, I have mixed feelings about this whole New Republic thing, because first of all, let's be honest, the battle droids... Maybe through no will of their own, but mm-hmm. did terrorize civilian populations right. all over the galaxy, mm-hmm. all over these Republic worlds. So, a lot of PTSD out there. Right. And people aren't going to be comfortable having them around. But at the same time, these are conscious beings, right? Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think we are moving towards this whole, the droids have some kind of consciousness. Yep. And uh, maybe we should be a little bit more thoughtful about how we treat them. And, uh, and, and the other part is like the new Republic is so wasteful.
0: Yeah. They are, yeah, yeah.
2: you know, they're wasting all this talent. It's, uh, somebody said, I think on our discord, you know, it's, it's like the, the, I forgot the name of the program, but the program where we, where we took the Nazi scientists and had them build rockets.
1: Uh, well. Was it paperclip or something. Yeah. I can't remember. What yeah. It was something called. like yeah.
2: that. Yeah. Paperclip. And you know, it's like you did that, but worse because, because you're taking all these capable people and you're putting them into jobs where they can't do anything for society, Mm -hmm. that they're really just doing a job that anybody could do. Right. And, uh, there's a waste there. There's like a waste of talent. There's a waste of material, material. Right. Exactly. Like, just because it was imperial doesn't mean it's not useful technology. Mm-hmm. You can still take that, and I don't know. A lot of people don't have ships in the galaxy. We've seen that. What about the lower levels of Coruscant? People mm-hmm. could use droids. They could use, you know, uh, ships, and and you're not even giving them the option. You're just deciding that anything that you didn't make is bad. Anything other than you is bad. And that I think is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a t- it's a tough line to figure out. Uh, okay, so you have a Star Destroyer, you take away all the, you know, snub fighters or TIE fighters or whatever, you know, small craft are in there, Right. take out all the guns, that's still a pretty powerful ship, you know, uh, sure. and w- uh, what do you do with it? You know, oh, you turn it into a bus line? I, I don't know. Uh, it's, uh, it's a hard question. But that is a lot of material, a lot of effort, a lot of money that has gone into building those objects. Right.
2: So... The Empire spared no expense on its uh, military it and other things, too. No.
1: And yeah, and then this whole question of, of droid rights, droid sentience. I mean, we dealt with some of this in the Bad Batch season two. I won't get into too many details if you haven't caught up on that, but there's some questions about clones and what happens if you have a clone army and then you stop using them. You know, what right. do they do? Where do they go? Are they really, if they're clones, or do they really own themselves? Um, and then here we have this whole... Society that, as uh, um, Hellgate says, if we stopped all the droids right now, the society would collapse because this whole direct dem- democracy thing—people don't work. We are just sort of living for in this weird pleasure uh, society. Not, you know, what I'm saying. There, there there's uh, arts and entertainment, whatever. That that's the chief pursuit of this planet, and it's all supported by the droids. So, if you hit the big giant kill switch on the droids. What, what are you doing to the droids? You're take, they're, they're your servants, you depend on them, but then you have the ability to take their agency away in one fell swoop. Uh, and, like, that's – what is that? That's, that's kind of crazy, right? You have a whole indentured yeah. class yeah. Of, of sentient beings that you could kill in, in one press of a button.
2: Yeah, or you can so, you know, weaponize them with one press of a button, apparently.
1: Apparently, apparently. All right, the bartender explains that the droids consume Nepenthe, a refreshing beverage that lubricates while also patches programming. It seems that all the malfunctioning droids drank from the same batch, and they head to the droid Mortuary, classic scene from a buddy cop movie. They learn that Nepenthe is contaminated by nanodroids, and they trace the shipment back to Hellgate. Well, the medical droid goes crazy from the transfer of fluids, and Din has to use the Darksaber to stop the out-of-control
2: droid. I did like the joke of, oh, is it still active? (laughs) Yes, it's still (laughs) active. Yes, it is. That was pretty funny, actually.
1: Very, very contaminating. But why do you need to put a droid in a morgue? (laughs) Why isn't the droid down with the, the Ugnaughts being repaired? Um, but it was a classic buddy cop thing where they, you know, they've got to go, you know, check the body in one of the morgue things. So I thought it was kind of cute from that standpoint.
2: Yeah. I guess this is where the logic of this episode started to break down for me. Yes, totally. Because if he's got the ability to control all these droids, it seems like it would be very easy for him to, if he could activate all of them as battle droids, it would be very easy for him to activate some of them as battle droids. Mm Mm-hmm. So why did he need to do the nanodroids at all?
1: And then what what was the nanodroid thing actually
2: accomplishing?
1: What was that actually... Right. What was his agenda? It seems agenda? like it just
2: made them be crappy at the menial tasks yeah. rather than attack people.
1: Yeah, they just kind of went crazy. And yeah, well, who knows? The uh, the uh, sushi chef droid, probably, they didn't show us what happened when that oh, one yeah. was yeah. chopping things up. So that, that could have been ugly.
2: No. But still, right. it's just, yeah, this is where the logic of the episode, this is yep. where I said the writing was starting to go, uh, yeah. I don't know about this, you know, it's, yeah, it was a little weak sauce. Agreed. A little weak sauce.
1: Bo and Din confront Helgate, who reveals himself to be a separatist. They subdue him. I didn't give up to a corrupt republic. I didn't give up to the Empire, and I won't give up to you. I support democracy. Count Dooku was a visionary. He was cut short by the Jedi, as was your little speech. So, yeah, I instantly
2: uh, thought of you when he said Dooku, and I was like, whoa, hey, Dooku. Uh. Dooku is one of the most interesting characters in Star Wars. Yeah. Prove me wrong, at least in canon Star Wars. Uh, he definitely was about to name drop Anakin. Just to oh, say, really? Just to say was that, that? I think so. Anakin killed Dooku. Yeah. He was cut short by the Jedi Anakin Skywalker. That was the, those were the next oh. words out of his mouth,
1: I think. Oh, interesting, because I just heard, that, like, the Jedi. As in, you know, the,
2: the, the capital, you know,
1: plural. I think he said
2: Jedi Enforcer, too, right? He was like, the Jedi Enforcer, oh. Anakin Skywalker.
1: Somebody check that out and get back to us, because uh, that would be good. Yeah, get the get the screen um, captions up on and, and see what he actually said there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would. I think they should have done the name drop. That would have been fun. That would have blown everybody's brain. Yeah, that would have blown Because everybody knew brain. that, right? Like, this, mm-hmm. this that would have made sense.
1: Not everybody because- knew. I didn't know, so...
2: No, I'm saying everybody in this world, everyone yes, in the okay, Star Wars right. universe right. knows who Anakin Skywalker is. He was a celebrity in the Clone Wars. Really. Right. Yeah. He was a war hero. And right. everybody knew he killed Dooku. hmm
1: Makes sense. All right. The Duchess and Bombardier play a game, and Grogu uses his force powers to help her win. Bo and Din bring in Hellgate, who is banished to the moon of Paraquat. Um, Hellgate served the Duchess's family well, she says, and which is like, you know, another 77 callback. You know, you served my family well. You served my father well in the Clone Wars. Yeah. So these little yeah. phrases there. So. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. We, we, we love a little callback. The Duchess honors Bo and Din with a key to pleasure, and Grogu is granted knighthood in the ancient order of independent regencies. Grogu is now Sir Grogu. Sir Grogu.
2: Sir Grogu, the Green Knight. Yeah. There you go. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, uh.
1: Interesting. I'm sure uh, Marilyn will have something to say about the Green Knight, because I don't know if the Green Knight and Grogu are necessarily of the same ilk, but...
2: No, they are. I've just decided.
1: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I tried to look up ancient order of independent regencies and that also seems to be a brand new construct. So we'll probably see that as later, later, and also put a pin in the moon of Paraquat. We will see if that comes up as, as well. Again, they're just sort of taking those, uh, tinker toys and, you know, sticking the sticks and the hub pieces and building out the, the universe even more. Mm,
2: Sounds a lot like the Confederacy of Independent Systems, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. Mm. Our heroes head out to Landing Pad 3 to talk with Wove and the other Mandalorians. Bo challenges Wove and wins. Din relinquishes the Darksaber to her under the Darksaber technicality. Bum, bum, bum. John,
2: what did you think of this final scene of the episode? Everybody's making fun of it as just copying Harry Potter rules. Oh really? I haven't. Okay, I, yeah, you'll have to educate me on that. There's a whole concept in Harry Potter with the it's it's there's a technicality that is very important in the last book about okay. the ownership of the Master Wand, which is like the most powerful wand ever. Okay, and it's the same rules of you have to defeat somebody in combat. You have to oh, right. Them. <laughs> this is completely the same stuff. It's exactly the same, and uh, they just ripped it from there, which fine. I'm sure. I'm sure this is not the first piece of you know media that has ever thought of this idea shocking! winning a (laughs) winning a
1: winning a single combat
2: yeah yeah but yeah it was everybody's saying oh yeah the the master wand i mean the dark saber uh it it follows the same rules that's funny i thought it was okay i thought it was okay It, it does not totally make sense that he didn't say this before now but maybe he goes well i think she's earned it Maybe. Maybe he didn't buy the lore of the dark saber, mm-hmm. and now now he, he does. thinks that she earned it. So he's just like, "Yeah, all right, I'll give it to her."
1: Um, she says it's not a gift to be given, no matter how well intended. Didn't
2: didn't Sabine just give it to her? She did, and, and uh, didn't that go well. Is, no, that ended in Moff Gideon destroying Mandalore. Right. So uh, it's not a gift to be given. So, Which, by the enough. way, something I didn't mention before. That ship, I think, is the same ship that destroyed Mandalore. And now it's going to go reclaim Mandalore. Oh, interesting. Okay. Gideon's uh, like cruiser.
1: Right, because he's the one who
2: led the siege of Mandalore. Right.
1: Okay. Nice. Good call. Good call. All right. um, I love the music in this scene. This kind of (laughs) disco sound thing. I thought it was really cool. Um, I thought that the fight was pretty good and realistic between um, Axe and Bo, and that, you know, they would have known each other's fighting styles because they would have trained together, and so they would have Mm -hmm. known each other's moves. And so um, that she bested him, I think, says something about her as a fighter. Um, And, you know, he he outweighs her by a bunch, and he's way taller and has a much bigger wreath, so he's a much more dangerous fighter, and she still kicks his ass. So I thought that that was a, a good tell on on
2: how wily and how tough Bo actually is. Yeah, yeah. She was very smart in her combat. Yeah, she really used his his own his own strengths against him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very smart. I liked it. I liked the fight. It was a good fight. It was fun to watch, and it meant something. And it was really an honest defeat. And. And that's how you know it was an honest defeat because at the end he's just groveling. Yeah, he's just not not groveling. He's taunting. He's yeah. whining like a baby. Like, oh, you're never gonna really rule. Rah, 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 rah. Right. Yeah.
1: So I, I did get kind of big feels when Bo gave it to her and uh, gave her the 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 sword when Din um, gave it to her. Yeah, sorry. When Din gave her the when, when Din gave yeah, her yeah. the dark saber. I got I feels. yeah, And um, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm fine with the technicality. I, I'm not I'm not too worried about it. I think it had to be done I don't think he could have done it just on the side somewhere and between them. He had to do it in front of other people. And it's interesting because when you if you're a Mandalorian and you say, Hey, this thing happened, people believe you. This thing happened, right? He, I have he says, Yeah, I have spoken. That's that's a very another very good point. That, you know, that it was done in, in public and it explained in this way. And it was interesting when he handed it over, everybody started coming to attention and they started turning and they really felt, you know, like you could feel uh, the shift in the other Mandalorians and the night owls' uh, attitudes. And so I thought it was interesting, but question, this whole thing of creed versus blood, and who's the more uh, fanatical here, the children of the Mm. watch or the night owls, right? You know, they believe in a magic sword if you wave it around. (laughs) You know, I mean, no. or, or you have this, um, you know, so far, the armor and that, and that covert have been honorable, right? They haven't yeah. been dishonorable. They haven't been taking people and shutting them out and, and saying you can't call your family and you got to give all your possessions to the, you know, right, whatever. Right. You keep, you, you yeah, you earn 100 credits, 25 of them you tithe, and you, 75, that's yours. Go do it, brother. But, you know, just drop off your 25 for the foundlings and, and we're good like that's all pretty straight up so yeah i don't know who's a little bit more fanatical
2: well i think that the the dark the dark saber does hold weight with the children of the watch too that's not solely with the night owls they definitely believe in that too like paz Vizla straight up challenged din for it and when din won he didn't fight him back for it that's true
1: right um you know honorable right yeah so, right. um, uh, Lisa uh, sent in some more information about the Creed, so let's take a listen to that audio clip.
0: Overall, I definitely say this episode moved the plot forward. Uh, I get the people want Din to be the hero, and he will be, but he's never shown any interest in or adeptness at leadership. And giving up the Darksaber, that gives him more time to be a Grogu dad, and isn't that what we all really want the most? Um, but I like seeing Bo defend him. It's interesting that we've seen both sides call each other, quote unquote, not real Mandalorians. Uh, Axe Wolves was using a blood purity argument, which is ironic considering the first Mandalorians were immigrants to the planet themselves. Uh, but unfortunately, that's an irony that's all too well reflected in the real world. Uh, on the other hand, Bo argues that Din follows the Mandalorian creed like the first Mandalorians. So maybe that gives him an even better claim. Um, Now, there were some questions on the Discord about what exactly is included in this creed. Uh, And this is a Mandalorian series invention, so we only know what we've learned in this show. Um, The literal words of the creed, they're quite short. I swear in my name and the names of the ancestors that I shall walk the way of the Mandalore, and the words of the creed shall be forever forged in my heart. This is the way. Uh, we've seen Din say this when he bathed in the living waters, Boy Visla, when he took his helmet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the larger creed, the, the rules of their society, of the children of the watch, uh, we're learning these as we go. Uh, we know the helmet rule. We know the importance of taking in and taking care of foundlings and the excellent words, one does not speak unless one knows. Um, the rules surrounding the dark saber that it must be worn in, in battle. Uh, this is the way. But what we're seeing in this episode is how these different interpretations complement each other and bring balance, the core concept of Star Wars. This episode shows us how Mando and Bo's skills complement each other. In every challenge they face this episode, from negotiating with royalty to negotiating with Ugnat mechanics, together they had everything they need to face any challenge. And honestly, at this point, I'm hoping it's all three of them riding the Mythosaur together in the finale.
2: Well, I'm just glad that we're not Mandalorians ourselves because if we only spoke when we knew, we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> That's right; we'd be in a lot of trouble. We couldn't follow that creed at all.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm ready to retire and just become a uh, Grogu daddy, so that that works for me.
2: Oh, but that helmet looks hot, you know. Mm, Especially, yeah. you got to live on a on a beach planet. Oh no, you don't want to be wearing a helmet <laughs> there. Get some rays.
1: I really uh, like this last point that uh, Alicia was pointing out that. Between Din and uh, Bo in this whole episode, that they had all the tools necessary between them. They just haven't figured out in which situation who should take the lead, you know, be the lead partner, and who should back up the other one. Or hey, I know you, you you're good at this stuff, so you take this, I'll take that. So I think they're they're working that stuff out. I think that's what this episode does: is it builds some more working relationship between Bo and Din on a very practical, tactical level. Right. And you got to get your
2: playbook together.
1: Exactly. And you can only do that by spending time together and time under stress and in conflict. Um, Exactly. So, yeah.
2: Cool. Well, thanks, Alicia. Yeah. Always lovely to hear from you.
1: So, uh, yeah, Alicia's been dropping a lot of knowledge bombs on her. Uh, Maybe we should uh, invite her in for a quick
2: chat during the season wrap up. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's uh, let's keep everybody posted on that. Sounds good. Okay. All right, David, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we will do feedback. And we're back. David, do you want to lead us into feedback? Johnny Fallout wins big. He called it.
1: He sent in an email uh, back in episode two, and he called the ta- technicality. And so massive props and internet points to you. Drinks on you, Johnny Fallout, at the Adelphi bar. Mm. We're all headed there after the season is over, and you're buying. Uh, nice. But good job, Johnny. You, uh, you called it. Um, you know, and John, you know, as Johnny said, uh, you know, some of us, you know, we just believe in waving around magic swords and, you know, that's, that gets us uh, all uh, excited. That sounds good. Ready to yeah. lead. So, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, next, we've got Viv by email with a prediction about Bo Katan and future conflict. Well, this may be dated by the time we, we read this. Uh, Viv says, Hey, Lorehounds, listening to you guys since Rings of Power and have been around. We have so many. OG listeners from Rings of Power. It's amazing. It amazes me every time. It's the T-Rop crop. (laughs) Yes, it is the T-Rop crop. Um, Wanted to raise a Mandalorian theory that I don't think we've heard uh, or that she's heard us address yet. In the animated Star Wars series and in previous seasons of The Mandalorian, we've seen a lot of emphasis put on the fact that whoever controls the Darksaber controls the Mandalorian people. Interestingly, We haven't seen Bo-Katan and Din resolve the dispute over the Darksaber. We just have! Uh, With the armorer sending back Bo-Katan off to recruit more Mandalorians in the most recent episode, I think we're squaring up for a big conflict between Bo-Katan and Din. Oh no. No conflict. We know that you can only... No internet points for you, Viv. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry, Viv, but thank you for writing in. We know that you can only really that was supposed to be from The prices, Right, the uh, the loser sound. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> sorry, that was it didn't come out very well. We know that you can only really control the dark saber if you defeat its previous owner. So if Bo Katan ever wanted to use the dark saber as a symbolic indicator that she's its rightful owner uh, and the rightful rightful ruler of Mandalore and rally other Mandalorians to help her retake the planet, she may convince herself into thinking that she needs to kill Din. This theory oh, no. is further supported by the meaningful look Previsla gave Mando. Uh, no, I don't think it's Previsla. I think it's uh, Pazvisla. Right. Gave right. Mando when the armor announced Bo-Katan was in charge of uniting the Wayward Mandalorians. Pazvisla respects Din and acknowledges his power over the dark saber. I think we're building up to a bigger conflict where Din and Grogu have to face off against Bo-Katan and company. With Grogu eventually wielding the Darksaber and communing with the the and thus ruling, ruling Mandalore. Really excited to see what happens and hear your commentary on it. Curious to hear your predictions about the Bo-Katan conflict. Cheers, Viz. Viv. Thank you, Viv. (laughs) Big swing and a miss from Viv. Yeah. Um, But a good theory. theory. It was a good theory while it lasted. I think a lot of people were looking for potential conflict um, and to see what would happen. But uh, alas, they are not going that direction.
2: Our expectations have been subverted. I Completely. do enjoy the idea of Grogu eventually ruling Mandalore. Uh-huh. Uh, I could see this happening now. You know, you say, King Grogu, what would you like us to do? And he goes, <laughs> and has nothing, nothing to say. Did you just and melt I don't know when, how to rule the country.
1: When Lizzo was, uh, you know, scratching his head and he was purring. So I think it goes to the, the theory <laughs> yeah. that Grogu is a cat, not a dog. I think that's a big internet flame war
2: situation okay. that's happening right now. Okay, Cat
1: versus dog.
2: Yeah, he's definitely got more cat energy. He's wary of people, and then he all of a sudden he's like, All right, but you're okay.
1: Right. And then he just jumps into your lap. He's like, hey, I'm here. Right. Here's my butt. Right.
2: You know, like I love his cuddle jumps. <laughs> yes. They're, they're great. Very sweet.
1: With fish. Dangle fish in front of him, dangle fish in front of him, and, and he's all over it. Andrew exactly. from North Dakota wrote into to Star Wars at the email address. Subject line reads On being critical of Star Wars. Andrew says, I've been with you from the start. Thank you, Andrew. Cutting Mandalorian some slack, I can understand the show has positioned itself more as a Saturday cartoon serial. We can roll with that. Uh, he comments that he repeatedly went to the new Transformers movies and at least enjoyed the audio-visual exploits and kinetic energy of the artisans, that the artisans delivered. But they were bad, even though it would come, he would come out positive. Uh, He'd still say, now, if this was actually a good movie to pair with this awe-inspiring tech demo, we'd be elated. Everything can be better. I just finally started Andor when Mando came back. I'm not sure we would get Andor if people were never critical. Mando, though, doesn't even always adhere to the Saturday morning family-friendly tone. If it wants to, it opens itself up to criticism more than I think it even should. John, thoughts? on Andrew's well, email.
2: Yeah, I first of all, I appreciate the feedback and I I want to make clear I don't want to give I mean you even heard in this episode, I did criticize it a bit. I don't want to give Mandalorian a full pass on bad writing, right? Uh-huh. Like if it's bad writing, I will call it bad. Right. But I will be much more forgiving about the writing in a show that doesn't take itself so seriously that wants to give you a good time rather than a long time. That I, I'm much more forgiving on that than if we had a bad episode of Andor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't agree that we would have gotten Andor, that we would not have gotten Andor without criticism. I mean, Andor was in development a long time. I'm sure Book of Boba Fett didn't immediately spring Andor. And I don't think that it really resulted from an order. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think that somebody sought out Andor. I think that Diego Luna and Tony Gilroy loved the character and wanted to bring him back and so made a story out of love. So I, I actually kind of disagree with that. I think that gassing up Star Wars, gassing up this universe and having more people excited for it, for whatever reason, whether you like the Saturday morning cartoons, whether you like the deep dramas of Andor, whether you like the original trilogy or even the sequels, that is what gets you more Star Wars shows. Whether they will all be good, I I doubt every single show in the Star Wars universe is going to be good. No no universe is going to be perfect, right? I mean, Rings of Power is very flawed. I don't know a lot about Star Trek, but I've heard that some of the iterations are really good and some of them are lacking. Uh, and I, I think that that's just what you got to deal with when you're in a franchise, right? When you're in a long running franchise with a lot of creators. Yep. But point taken on the criticism, I, I do think it's valid to critici- criticize any show when it's not doing its job. I think what I'm saying is the job of The Mandalorian is quite different than the job of Andor. Yeah. And it's okay to judge them on different scales and on dr- different criteria.
1: Right. I would uh, s- um, tend to agree on, on a particular aspect of his comment about that we'd never get an Andor if people weren't critical. I think I agree that, that uh, Gilroy and um, um, I'm blanking. Diego Luna. Thank you, Diego Luna, f- did fall in love with that character. And they did want to pursue it, but I don't think they would have pursued it if there wasn't a thirst out there for what Rogue One gave us. Because a lot of people were like, whoa, Rogue One, this is stuff we've been waiting for and a, an aspect that we've wanted to explore. And so that fan reaction, which, you know, isn't criticism, it's, but it's still born out of, we don't have anything like this. You just keep giving us this other stuff over here, we're frustrated. And so then when we do get this other thing, we're like super elated, like our, our, our sure, response sure. is higher. And then so when it does, when Andor does come out, um, it's coming out to a primed and readied audience who have been hungry for this. And that hunger, sure. I don't think would have been as sharp if people weren't critical. So I don't know that Kathleen Kennedy is necessarily going, reading the pulse of the fandom and going, oh, they really want a dark and you know, stormy you know, version. <laughs> you know, who knows what's going through their head. But the fact that the reception, that the critical reception, that because they didn't get the same numbers that they wanted, but the critical reception was really, really high. Um, and I don't think that we would have gotten that unless our hunger hadn't been sharpened by the criticism. So I think it's a bit of a nuanced dynamic there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm looking at it more as that hunger is a hunger of its own. like we can have an Andor and we can have a Mandalorian and they're two different audiences and they're two different goals and they can both be great. Now they could both fall on their own merits, right? Like season two of Andor could be terrible. You you know, it's a very self-serious show. It takes itself very seriously. If they don't nail that writing, that's a lot higher of a standard to live up to, especially after a great season one. Now this is both the sophomore season and the final season. This could fall on its face. I hope it doesn't. I hope it's amazing. But I you know, I I don't think Tony Gilroy is a, a god without faults either. So sure, I, yeah. I'm just hoping that that it comes back and I think there's blows an, us away again.
1: I think there's an important point here too about on being critical. So if, if a show like Andor, which takes itself very seriously uh-huh. and comes with a big pedigree on on writing and, and production, that if it falters or you know and, and fails, we're going to be Critical from the critiquy standpoint, we're not just going to be throwing right. rotten eggs because we want we like to throw rotten eggs. We're gonna right. we're gonna point out the flaws and, and problems as we see them. Same like we did with Rings of Power. There was a lot of great stuff, and then there was a lot of you know er, not so great stuff. And we balanced our critique and our criticism, right, in the right. best sense of hey that worked and that didn't. We're not going to call. We're not just going to throw slop at it because we right. can. And I think right. we came into the Mandalorian with this season going, yo, this is Saturday morning cartoon, we're at the base level here, anything from that level and up, cool. And so we don't need to take this seriously, and we don't need to critique it the same way that we critique Andor, which is taking itself seriously. I don't exactly. think Filoni and Favreau are taking themselves th- in the same kind of seriousness that, um, that Gilroy is with Andor.
2: And so I'm going to judge it on the merits, right? Totally. They're, we do judge shows on different criteria based on what they're trying to do. You don't yeah. judge a comedy based on its drama writing, right? Right. Exactly. Anyway, we've talked about this a while now. It's time to move <laughs> Important on. Important stuff. And What's another... in, though?
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, we've got another uh, bigger topic here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we got uh, some questions about the, the prequels that opened up a larger Star Wars conversation. And our favorite uh, not only is she our favorite Tolkien scholar, but she's our favorite Star Wars scholar as well. Ah. And we've got something from Marilyn R. Pukila, who's and watching
2: Rebels right now. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So Rebels is good enough for Marilyn Pukila, but not good enough for David Lohrhound. Mm. <laughs> I don't know oh. over here. Nine one one. I'm throwing some. I'm firing some shots. Can here. you send uh, send a medic
1: to my address, please? <laughs> Yeah, so Peter O.H., who is a lore master on our Patreon, uh, opened up this conversation, this line of dialogue a couple of weeks ago. So Marilyn wrote in and she says, Regarding the conversation about seeing Empire Strikes Back in 1980, and then having to wait three years, ugh, uh, for the return of the Jedi, there was definitely a lot of kerfuffle going on. The biggest discussion point, of course, was the Skywalker lineage. Was Darth Vader, in fact, Luke's father? For myself, I was ecstatic with the entire film. I recognized the hero's journey quite distinctly for the first time in this very new approach to the stories in space. I think this was always one of the original trilogy's greatest strengths. Yes, it was set in space. Yes, it had a lot of cool technology, and it was following a very, very ancient storyline from a long time ago in our own galaxy. Moreover, Lucas was not afraid to combine the technology of science fiction with the non-material elements of the Force. I think only Ursula K. Le Guin had done that up to this point, and I think it has always stood the Star Wars universe in good stead. Of course, it also produces a lot of its own kerfuffle, particularly among the sci-fi aficionados who are not happy with the non-material in any form. I'm particularly struck by the Andor series, which appeared in the first season to have left out the Force almost entirely. I love the way Rogue One introduced the concept of being Force sensitive without being a Jedi, and I hope that Andor might do the same. It'll be interesting to see how this continues to unfold. But the biggest thing I recall was that I was absolutely convinced as the credits rolled for that first time, that not only was Vader Luke's father, but that Luke was going to be instrumental in Vader's redemption. Again, I recognized the familiarity, uh, the familiar story trope, and I was—it was so satisfying to be proven
2: right. All right, When's John. Marilyn going to write her Star Wars movie. That's what I want to know. <laughs> Fair enough. I'd watch it. Yeah.
1: Um, props to Marilyn for bringing in Ursula K. Le Guin into a Star Wars uh, feedback email if you are, are regular listener to ours. Um, but we're about to record part two of uh, A Wizard of Earthsea, our conversation about that. We're doing all four, we're starting out with all four of the main Earthsea books. And if you haven't read these, Ursula K. Le Guin wrote these back in the mid-late 60s. And they are a huge foundational element of modern sci-fi and fantasy, and they're beautiful books, eloquently written, very short, uh, wonderful, wonderful stories. Um, but props to Marilyn for, for crossing the streams of uh, Le Guin and Star Wars. We love it. Yeah. Um, any thoughts about, uh, about what she wrote here?
2: I mean, that's pretty cool that you, that you figured out that he was going to help in the redemption, because I think that that was... That was almost like an emotional twist, right? Because the whole mm-hmm. trilogy, he's working up to fighting him right. and to, to working to kill him and or at least capture him. And no, he goes, no, I'm going to fight it with love. And then he learned nothing, as I've said before. <laughs> and I wish that they had had him learn something. They did not. Right. But he does eventually, we know. So yeah. let's, let's hope we get there at some point. I wonder if we'll see Luke this season. I don't think so.
1: Yeah, I'd be fine if we didn't. Uh, I would like yeah. to see some of the, uh, the Ahsoka characters coming across. But yeah, it was a tough run waiting from 77 to 80 and then 83. Um, and when they dropped the I'm your father thing, like, you know, in the whole ending scene of Luke hanging off that, you know, antenna on the bottom of the, the cloud city, like that was a very emotionally hard hitting episode. And it was a perfect middle story for a three story arc. Uh, and, and really, I think that's one of the reasons why it's a lot of people's favorites. Is because it was so hard-hitting, and uh, it did its job. It, it in in a three-story arc, it did its job, and it did it really, mm-hmm. really well. So, yeah,
2: with excellent dialogue that needed no improvement. <laughs> well, on that note, David, I think yes. it's time to do our outro. So it is. Would you like to describe our patrons for everyone? I I, I like to describe them as heroes. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> they they are in our eyes. Um, we do have a Patreon. It is the best way to support us. If it works for you, uh, we would really love to have your patronage. Um, there are material costs in producing podcasts uh, of the quality that we try to uh, uh, achieve, um, and our all of our Patreons uh, do that for us. At the base level, three bucks, you get almost everything. Our ten dollar level, the Lore Masters. One of the things you get is a shout-out, and we like to shout you out every episode. And we have 19. We have 19. 19. masters. It's crazy. And so they are Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., S.C., Peter O.H., Bettina W., Adam S., Nancy M., Lavinia T., Duve 71 Brian8063, Frederick H., Sarah L., and newest lore master, Gareth C. Thank you all so very
2: much for your support. Thank you all. I mean, amazing people. But now I have to tell you all what we have coming up for everyone. In April. Sunday, April 2nd, we just put out our first Lorehounds play episode with Brandon the Bard. I was joined by Brandon to discuss The Last of Us Part 1, and we only got through Part 1 of Part 1. So we're calling (laughs) it Part 1A to avoid that much confusion. And uh, we, we had a great time just talking about the game, talking about the history of the development, uh, the different consoles it's been on, the different way the controller reacts, you know, the, all the little Easter eggs. I mean, we went long here. I think it's going to be a total runtime of like three hours or something of the two podcasts together. So, yeah, definitely check that out. So earlier this week, we also put out uh, Star Wars, the Bad Batch season three. Oh, my God. Season three. We're in the future. Season two wrap up. Uh, and Star Wars Visions Volume 1 together in one little package where David and I broke that down, and we talked about Star Wars animation generally, I had a blast talking about a galaxy far, far away. So if you're watching The Mandalorian, you might like that too.
1: Yeah, it was a fun episode to record.
2: Yes, it was. Ted Lasso is back, and we are covering it in full, kind of, because we're doing short little bite episodes that are going to rock you to sleep with their... Comfort because that's what Ted Lasso does. I'm losing it. I'm losing yeah, the, going to the, the train places. of thought, guys. Okay, it's getting late. Uh, this Saturday we have a new episode of Second Breakfast for our patrons, and that is going to be on eggs. And we're going to review the movie Raising Arizona, which is part of our little little challenge. You know, I challenged David to pick three uh, Nicolas Cage movies. The patrons voted on it, and Raising Arizona won. I wish we had gotten uh uh the wicker man because it's way more unhinged (laughs) but raising arizona pulled through pulled pulled past the wicker man at the last minute last moment yep the last thing i want to mention is monday april 10th we have the book nook coming out with marilyn arpukila a wizard of Earthsea part two we just discussed it a little while ago it's a great read please join us if you haven't all right david anything else to add before we sign off
1: no, just really enjoying The Mandalorian and enjoying all the conversations that we're having on, on the Discord. Uh, people are into it. Um, and yeah, you know, put on your jammies and uh, pour yourself a bowl of uh, blue cereal milk and
2: uh, have a good time. Very cool. All right, see you all soon. The Lorehounds Podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. And connect with us on Twitter at the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. All right, so we're back in our post-credits section where we're going full Rebel spoiler.
0: A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning.